0: This is a podcast about the hardcore community,
1: made by and for those who live authentic lives and embrace hard truths.
0: We archive the stories of the bands and people who make this lifestyle possible. I'm Josh Lyon. And I'm Greg Benoit. And this is the Hardcore Archive Podcast. All right. Welcome everybody to another fun filled episode. Uh, I guess to get things out of the way right away, if uh, you're tuning in for the first time and you're. Excited to hear an interview with uh, an AEW wrestling superstar or former Every Time I Die guitar player. Uh, This is not that interview, unfortunately, but uh, we're going to be talking about some other cool stuff, and maybe we'll talk about the name Coincidence at some point. Um, We'll be talking uh, about his uh, time coming up in Connecticut Hardcore, playing in a bunch of good Syracuse bands like The Funeral, Eternal Youth. Might even talk a little bit about Woodstock 99. We'll see if he wants to tonight um but with all that being said our guest is going to be andy williams how's everything going for you tonight man
1: uh
0: i'm
2: doing well and and yeah you you uh you mentioned it but i was gonna tell people uh if they if they scan quickly at the notes uh apologies i am the less prominent andy williams from upstate new york hardcore by far uh so anyway uh but but maybe this this will be fun regardless
0: just as prominent to our listeners i feel like as the other (laughs) one um but i i honestly was thinking about saying it at the end too so we would listen through the whole thing and maybe wait for the Mm -hmm. stories and then realize but you know um so yeah we'll talk a lot about syracuse like i told you before when we were texting i'm really i'm really curious to talk to you about connecticut and stuff though so like guess we'll kind of start there uh if you want to talk a little bit about like upbringing and just kind of like what like what led you to uh like hardcore and punk in that area you know
2: sure yeah i was i was thinking about it and how i got into things and it and it was from a few different angles so one was um when i was when i was a kid i actually i would watch movies and it was a common trope in 80s movies where there'd be like some chase scene in new york and then they would go through like a club and it would be a punk club and i remember even as a little kid being like what is that like i want to know what that is that that like i i don't want to follow the plot of the movie like let's just hang out in this club this this just seemed like a cool thing so um i was always kind of drawn to it and then i remember like there were like some time life books or something around my house and they showed 77 london and just like sex pistols and that scene and i thought that was interesting and then um at one point uh, when I was in middle school, my sister's boyfriend was throwing out a bunch of CDs and he was like, Hey, you can take any of these. And one was Ramones mania. And so I got into that and loved the Ramones actually saw the Ramones when I was a freshman in high school, they played Riverside, which was now like a six flags as an amusement park in Western Massachusetts. Um, so technically the Ramones were my, were my first show, although it wasn't really a show. It was more of just like a concert at a, at a, uh, an amusement park, but there was a mosh pit and I did mosh. So my I, I'm very proud to say my first mosh was to Ramones. Um, and then uh, what happened was, so like a lot of kids in the early nineties, I was super into Nirvana. Um, they were like my favorite band. And so they did Unplugged and they covered, they had the Meat Puppets on and covered three Meat Puppets songs. And so I wanted to know everything about that. So I got Meat Puppets 2, uh, really love that record. I still love that record. I think it's amazing. And back in, in those days, SST did a really smart thing where they would have a little printed out catalog in every CD. So then I had this catalog and it was this portal to all these different things. So you could order Black Flag, uh, Minutemen, Descendants. And so I started really just getting into uh, everything SST and so I, I came at things through the punk side. Uh, although I did, I always liked Metallica and, and metal as well. But when I started getting into hardcore and punk, it, came, it definitely came from that um, 80s punk side and you know discovered minor threat. Uh, and so just kind of got into things that way. And then coincidentally in my high school, um, while I, I'll say that, um, I grew up in suburban Connecticut and uh, my high school was not the, the, the coolest place on earth. Like most of the kids in my class, I just felt were like just like lame and boring and, you know, just just wasn't into it. Um, but there was a core group of kids that were in the hardcore um, that was like amazing that I just lucked out. So like Chris Wren, who started Bridge Nine Records, went to my high school. And a bunch of the kids were into this band tenfold, or were in this band tenfold, which was actually the first two Bridge Nine releases were, were tenfold releases, um, and then later on those, those guys would go into a Fast Break in my eyes and and start these other Boston bands. Um, so I just got super lucky that these kids were in my high school, and so just by proximity, you know, we found out about shows and you know just started to go into going to shows from there.
0: That's stuff that I definitely want to get to in a second. And I do want to touch on what you said about the Ramones because it's funny because I've mentioned on here a lot that my sister, who's like 10 years older than me, she got me into a lot of this stuff and she took me to see the Ramones when I was in ninth grade in Rochester. And obviously you're a few years older than me, so it was different years, but it's still funny that you yeah. know we have this similar trajectory there or whatever. Um, so obviously there's a lot of, a lot of influential bands that you already kind of touched on in Connecticut around this era. And you kind of mentioned to me beforehand, like seeing Hatebreed and stuff like that when they were coming up. So like, were you, did you kind of dive right in once you discover like the hardcore scene and start going to shows like every weekend, like a lot of us teenagers usually do? Like I mean, when, when we are teenagers?
2: Yeah, I, well, I was at first I was confused. I was a little confused because when Tenfold started, they were very influenced by Earth Crisis. They are a vegan straight edge band, super like metal moshcore stuff. And so the shows that I knew of at the time were things that sounded like that or like twenty five to life would come up and play shows. And it like I didn't get it. Like I'm like I, I know hardcore as minor threat and I like didn't I didn't have the context to understand the through line of how well like why is it called the same thing? Like I didn't know about the Chrome or like anything bridging this stuff. Um, so it like didn't make sense to me it, like that they were both called hardcore like I just remember being if you'd be like if you heard ACDC and someone said yes, this is jazz like I just did I didn't get it so. Um, I really wasn't into the moshcore stuff like I just didn't like slow music, and so I, I was I frankly wasn't that into it um but like shortly right around that time more connecticut bands were forming that were like traditional old school hardcore bands and i would go to shows wearing a descendants t-shirt which was like really weird uh in connecticut for that time um and so like the kids in fast break were like oh that's awesome you're wearing a descendants t-shirt and i'm like really okay uh, i guess like i don't know i'm just i'm i just got here i don't know what's going on so i did like the faster stuff um, but like more of the slower metalcore stuff, I just, when I was in Connecticut, I wasn't really into, with with the exception of Hatebreed, because just like they were undeniable, like everyone going to shows just couldn't help but be blown away by Hatebreed, I had the, the Under the Knife demo on cassette, and it was just, we like wore that thing out, it was just so awesome. Um, But like a lot of the other bands, I just I just it took me a while I was going to punk shows and ska shows and it just like took me a while to get into the hardcore scene. And then there were some bands that kind of like helped bridge the gap like H2O started playing a bunch of shows in Connecticut and I liked Madball and Warzone would play and so like then I kind of like clicked like okay there's this like slow evolution in into the more heavier
1: stuff.
0: It's weird because I feel like you're 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 literally telling my story right now because like that's how I was too like a lot of the metalcore stuff like I just wasn't a fan of and even now like I like some of it but I still lean more towards what you would call traditional hardcore and it's funny you mentioned being like a teenager in the early '90s and having to sift through all this like hardcore and, and trying to decide what is and isn't hardcore to you or whatever you want to call it like imagine being that age now where there's like literally like like a hundred styles of what you could call hardcore now you know what I mean like, There's just so many different bands that are like doing so many different sounds and it's hard to keep track of everything now, you know? So, um, it's crazy. But back then
2: there was like no Wikipedia. There was no like Spotify where you can see the, the influences. So like without like knowing about the Chromags or integrity and stuff like that, you, it like literally, it doesn't make sense like why these two things were called the same thing. Cause my first exposure to hardcore was earth crisis and 25 to life. And it was just so, 180 degrees from the stuff that like black flag and minor threat that I thought was hardcore. So
0: anyway, did you, um, cause I don't remember exactly when you moved to Syracuse, like how many years, like, were you going to shows regularly in Connecticut for, I guess, before the, you ended up in Syracuse,
2: uh, a couple, I moved to Syracuse in the fall of 97, uh, when I went to college. So, um, you know, like 95, 96, I was going to shows in Connecticut, maybe a little bit before, um and then the summer of '97 and then I moved to Syracuse.
0: And then obviously we'll get to all the bands that you played in in Syracuse and whatnot. Were, were you already like trying to start bands in Connecticut or like playing any instruments there or anything?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I I played uh, uh, I played bass guitar, but I was never in a band. Um, and friends of mine had a band in Connecticut that I really liked, but they already had a bass player, and so I was just kind of like, waiting for the opportunity to find people to play with um and that didn't really happen until i moved to syracuse but i i always uh, played music i played saxophone in high school and coincidentally luke garrow who played drums in fast break and in my eyes was in my high school band he was the drummer in the band so like you know i, I could say you know i was in a band with luke garrow you know in like 93 but uh that that, that was as close as i got
0: Did you ever try to play in any ska bands with your knowledge of the horn
2: yeah we did we did my friend chris and i in high school we joined i think we practiced like twice or something and i played saxophone in this ska band uh yeah but it it never got beyond like a couple practices
0: i feel like that's something you definitely wouldn't see now is like i i don't know if it was totally like that in like syracuse and connecticut but like 97-ish like you would see like ska bands a couple of hardcore bands and a couple of punk bands playing here, you know, like, I don't I I don't think you'd see a ska band on those kind of shows now, but it could be wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And it was interesting. There was a little bit of crossover. Um, There's this band in Connecticut called Nigel Six that no one knows about. Um, And they played, they started as a ska band and then like morphed into like a melodic punk hardcore band, but they were so amazing. And they were like hardcore kids and, and skinheads and they would they would go to shows. Um, but so it, there was like this this hardcore crossover a little bit, but um once I really dove into hardcore, then I kind of left ska behind, and I'm like, oh that's cheesy, you know, horns, forget about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go back and check out like a classic ska album occasionally now as an adult, like Operation Ivy, even or something like that. But the same way, like once like a year or two of going to the more aggressive stuff, I was like, you can't really stage dive to ska bands, you know, so it's a little different. Um, as far as like the kind of try and do things in a timeline. So I'm not sure like which came first, uh, between the bands and, and working for alarm press, but I feel like we'll kind of just talk about alarm press first and then dive into sure. all the bands. Um, like, like I know that started off as more of like a fanzine. Cause that's kind of like when I first caught wind of it, like, like, were you working with on that, like with those guys, like, like initially, or did you kind of like start writing with them later on or.
2: Yeah, no. So in high school, so it's cool that you know about it, um, in high school, Uh, my friend, Chris, who we were in the same grade and we were both into hardcore. Um, he, we, he, I mean, I was kind of along for the ride. He really started it. We started this zine called uh, straight force, which was a pretty, uh, you know, classic, typical straight edge, uh, zine. Um, and then at some point he rebranded it. He turned it into alarm, uh, to you know, expand what we were doing a little bit more um, that was in college. So yeah, we started doing that in maybe 95, 96. Um, he continued to do it. He still publishes magazines. That's his profession now. So like he actually made a career, not in punk hardcore fanzines. He has a really awesome, uh, design magazine now. Um, but yeah, I, I was, you know, I like to write, so I would contribute writing and interview bands and stuff but it was really his uh his brainchild that was kind of along for the ride for it
0: it was cool though because like you had a lot of like consistent fanzines back then but then there would be a couple like that one and i feel like hex had the like, like the, the glossy covers sometimes and i forget what the dude superhero maybe the guy from burn it down and national acrobat like they had one too like there was like like some pretty big zines for a little while where you could like like now it's so easy to find information about like hardcore and stuff, yeah. obviously, you know, but back then it was still that was like the last era like where you kind of needed zines like they're still yeah. around now, yeah. but, you know, now I feel like it's more of like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's,
2: it, it's more of, I don't want to say novelty, but like, yeah, like they were a utility back then you needed them to understand what was going on and, and find out new stuff or learn about people uh learn about bands and stuff but um now now they're 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 still it's still awesome and everything but they're like more passion projects and and artistic projects than the actual utilities that they they used to function as
0: how long did you did you keep did you how long did you keep up with that with doing the alarm with that guy for just through college and stuff or
2: yeah, there's, um, he actually moved to Syracuse for the summer after I graduated college, so the summer of 2001, and we lived in a house uh, with a bunch of other hardcore kids, and we, we put out the magazine there, um, and that was awesome. That was like a dream summer where I had all my friends together, my friend from high school, and all the guys from Syracuse, uh, and it was great, but um, that last, I think he, he spent a summer in Syracuse, and then it's like, all right, I got I to get out of this town. Uh, he, he actually moved to China for a while and then, uh, and then went to grad school in Chicago. So, yeah.
0: Right on. So, yeah, I guess, like you said, we're kind of getting into Syracuse now. Like I know you said you moved there in 97. I feel like Eternal Youth was already around. Like, did you join the band like when they were already formed or or did you kind of start a band like right when you got there type thing?
2: Yeah, no, I was, I was in it from the beginning. So, so I moved to Syracuse and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know any, anyone there at all. And but because I knew hex, I knew hanging like a hex, I didn't know Ryan. Um, so I wrote to him, like, this is what you did. You would like move to a town, he write. I wrote a letter and sent it in the mail. And he was in going to school in Buffalo at the time. Uh, I didn't know, I just knew there was the Syracuse guy, and I liked a zine. And so, like, a few days later, I got a letter back and said, okay, like, here's, here's who you have to meet. You got to meet this guy, Bob. I think he's starting a band because he was he was starting up Set in Motion. And there's this kid todd and you know like and it was is so funny like i was in a band with ryan later on but he was really my my so helpful when i first moved there um and then super coincidentally uh, the floor that i lived on just randomly in the dorm that i got um on my floor was i, I didn't know them but was john peters and jim heffernan who are in spark Lights of friction none of us knew each other um, and it took me a couple months to find them and make friends with them, but we are all on the same floor. And so then I, you know, that was cool. And then through meeting some folks uh, one day, I was coming back and Tom Ranger was uh, hanging out at, at the dorm and you know, he like introduced himself. He's like, Hey, I'm Tom. I hear you play bass. You, we're going to start a band. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. And Tom was like, always like right on it he's like he had like his the you know pulling the elements together and, and forming the thing and so um yeah so that was when eternal you started i think maybe he was talking to some of the other guys before but um shortly after that we were uh we were we started
0: practicing so i guess kind of jumping back a little bit you had referenced like your first like hardcore show basically being earth crisis like what were your thoughts like moving into the city for like at least four years where like it's the epicenter of all that you know
2: yeah it's so so it's funny so again i was like super into traditional hardcore and um wasn't super into earth crisis like later on i developed a deep appreciation for earth crisis and even though in connecticut we are all very influenced like we were vegan straight edge kids so of course earth crisis had this big impression on connecticut but by the time i started going to shows like they're like the the kids that were into traditional hardcore it was you know like if you if you're the type of person that gets into hardcore and punk like you're naturally going to be the person that wants to be into the less popular thing and the more obscure thing and so Earth Crisis was so big and popular that it was kind of like no in Connecticut like we're gonna do a different thing like we're gonna do old school hardcore and you know Earth Crisis is a little passé now and it, there was this like really close minded attitude actually um, that it, you know kind of bums me out now um, but uh, so so like I you know but I was going to Syracuse for school and i when i applied i actually didn't even realize that was where earth crisis was from or there was a big hardcore scene i remember going on aol which was the internet at the time and being like are there are there hardcore bands in syracuse and people are like yeah idiot, earth crisis (laughs) like you ever you ever hear them and i was like oh okay uh and so and then i remember people being like oh you're moving to syracuse you're gonna be like a big like you know earth crisis dude now and i'm like i don't know like whatever so um so i i you know but then it was funny like when i when i moved and started meeting people like tom when i when i became friends with tom he knew a bunch of the guys and introduced me and then i realized like these earth crisis dudes that had this rep of being these like vegan like humorless warriors or whatever they they were like the nicest most accepting down to earth guys like Ian Edwards worked at Syracuse, this juice shop on Marshall street. And he was just like, Oh, you're a hardcore kid. Awesome. Like, So nice. Like right off the bat. And so that kind of immediately recalibrated, uh, you know, my, my impressions of things. So um, over time, after I moved to Syracuse and and just got exposed to more heavy music and heavy stuff, it really uh, opened or broadened my perspective a little bit. And I got a lot better um, uh, appreciation for for heavier music. But when I moved there, it was just like, nah, man, I don't, all youth of today, that's all I want. Like, I, don't, I got no time for this. So,
0: And I guess, so was that kind of what you were hoping to do with starting a band with like Tom and them with something more traditional then? Like, was that Was that kind of like the idea when you started talking to them about starting eternal youth Or
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. I still, I'm not really sure how Tom, he like got wind of me or something that there was this kid who liked old school hardcore. I think maybe, so I'd like met Grant through Jim and like we hung out one time and like I was stoked because Grant knew about all the old school stuff. And he, and like, I was, it was kind of like a weird, like there just wasn't a ton of kids into that stuff in Syracuse. And so somehow Tom knew about me or, or maybe I introduced myself and said, yeah, I'm into Youth of Today or something. And so that, that was kind of what he wanted to do uh as an alternative to you know the the like slower heavier stuff that was going on in syracuse but yeah that i mean that was the idea i wanted to play fast hardcore music
0: and i think i feel like i've talked to uh, well i think it was later with the funeral too with you guys kind of usher in a new era but i feel like you guys were kind of trying to do that with starting each other youth too with like kind of and not not like 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 you were saying like not like obviously Earth Crisis is another victim and those bands are good and stuff, but just kind of go in a different direction, you know? And uh, obviously you had set in motion too around the same time, you know what I mean? So um, was that kind of like a band you guys were playing with a lot too, or?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I love, so again, I, I met Bob and it was like, hey, I want to be in a band. And he was like, oh, well, I, I just started this band and we, we've 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 got a whole lineup. Audrey was playing bass. So I was like, okay, well, I missed I missed my shot. And then I was friends with Jim and Grant. Um, so I was fan number one, you know, moshing to them at the, you know, their first show and stuff. And then, yeah, I mean, Eternal Youth was a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that was the goal, was to just do something a little bit a little bit different. I think there was so many heavier bands in Syracuse and, and in upstate. And so it seemed like a little bit of a niche, like an opportunity to just do a, a different type of thing. And it, it fit with what I wanted to do
0: so I guess this would have been, uh, was, was this your first time playing on a recording center or, or Dan, you like yeah. your high school stuff, none of your high school stuff fucked around with, like four tracks or anything.
2: Uh, I mean, we might've recorded some stuff on four track, but real, yeah, yeah. Eternal youth. We went out to uh watchman studios and recorded, and that was like a brand, brand new experience uh, for sure.
0: Yeah. Doug white's come up on here. You know we're up i don't know what this is gonna be maybe one fifteen. i feel like he's come up on, on the podcast at least half the I, time you know I,
2: I can only imagine yeah yeah he's, he's the guy
0: yeah he's he recorded i mean he's still like people still go to him now like greg greg who i run the podcast with he's in a new band and they went and recorded with him recently you know so to this nice. day people still yeah so um but i guess when did like when did like rochester come into play feel like when did you realize that that there was like this scene like an hour and a half away and like those guys were kind of all like tighten it with those guys too
2: yeah so i well like right away our eternal use first show was in rochester um we played with break of dawn and i think like another victim played that show um but yeah so so from the beginning um in some some people knew the dudes in break of dawn Um, and, uh, I think maybe the second show we played was Standfast and, uh, and so right away, I felt like there was this connection because the Rochester kids were, were more, uh, like felt more like kids I went to shows with in Connecticut. Like I just felt like I vibed right away. I love Standfast. Like I, you know, saw them and I'm like, it was, it was really apparent really early on how how great they were and how awesome of a frontman rory was he just like naturally had this charisma and energy so i really liked rochester i felt like it was a super awesome posy, down-to-earth scene um and then that continued I, I mean i think for as long as i was playing bands like we we always played with rochester bands in in various incarnations so yeah
0: and to this day rory's still a good front man i mean him and uh rob antonucci and some other dudes have hard to know and still doing achilles and i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up that you're uh forever known with Stanfast too obviously for yeah. the uh inside tray of the uh cd i remember when i put that out john showed yeah. me the layout and i was like did you do you like talk to andy first to make sure he's cool with this <laughs> no
2: no it was a, it he was an it? Amazing, it was an amazing <laughs> burn i'll say that they, i remember <laughs> uh and so so i was gonna ask josh like so you are not the mastermind
0: uh behind i had nothing to do with it i swear (laughs) i think it was all john because i saw it and again i was like i could have sworn he told me he did but maybe he showed he said it i don't know but he i i i I know he at least said they gave you a copy maybe but maybe well
2: i remember that show where that came out and they were like hey Andy, we want to give you a copy of the cd i'm like all right cool and then like i there's like six guys looking at me (laughs) waiting to open it. And I was just like, okay, and didn't really think about it. And then, yeah, look under the CD, uh, amazing photoshopped version uh, of me with the unibrow brow and, and crossed eyes. So uh, I was like, okay, not <laughs> really good burn guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, um, so yeah, yeah. I'm glad to yeah. be known as, as that guy in Rochester.
0: Yeah, it's classic. I feel like Greg posted the some pictures or something with that. I, I saw it. I saw it on Instagram sometime within the last few years. So, um, but is and then did Eternal Youth play any of the the Hellfest '99 probably?
2: Uh, yeah, I think we played. Uh, I don't know which band played what. Um, I think we. I mean, we definitely played one or two New Year's Day shows. Um, I can't remember. Uh, Darker day tomorrow I know played the one that was supposed to be at the lost and then got moved out to, to that other place but my, my memory is is foggy on a lot of this stuff so I think I think eternal Youth did play one of them but I, I can't be sure
0: yeah that, that that's something that I usually try to uh, uh, say in the beginning of the interview I understand that a lot of these interviews are we're going back 20 to 25 years sometimes more so, if anything's lost with time it's totally understandable and some things are probably better lost with uh time in some cases so sure, yeah. <laughs> um the other thing too uh the, my last eternal youth memory and if, if you have any more too obviously but uh, uh the reunion show it's funny because i don't know if tom brought this up when i interviewed him but the first show and the reunion show are both in rochester then because you remember that reunion show in, in in rochester with head it was a head-on reunion too uh,
2: like like barely again these things are are so foggy there's i just there's so many shows in syracuse rochester occasionally out in, out in buffalo and so unfortunately a lot of it blends together uh we need hex's uh flyer archive to yeah. straighten it all out but um but like you know it this is why this type of stuff is really important to like just archive and document stuff because i'm not gonna fucking remember you know <laughs>
0: There's some stuff that I'm starting, like, cause I've always told people I've got a really good memory. And, and like, now there's some stuff that people ask me about and I'm like, man, I don't know if I remember that one, you know? Cause like you're saying there were so like, it's crazy. Like you're saying like, like we would go to as many shows. I feel like in a month as I go to in a year sometimes now, you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, not just every weekend, but like multiple times per weekend, sometimes during the week, you know, like you would see people in Albany or like you said, Buffalo, Syracuse, like everything was so close together too. You know, it was perfect
2: yeah yeah the one i'll say the show that i remember the most from eternal youth was new year's day 2000 um and tom always had a knack for like figuring out what the what the um like what the funny twist on the thing is gonna be or like what's gonna be like today it would be like a meme or whatever but like it was y2k everything was like you know y2k we were joking around about y2k but like no one knew and so he had these like ey2k shirts and we were so stoked to play that show and it had like a little graphic of a little clock with like hands like going crazy and stuff so um i remember that one and playing that new year's day show was was amazing kids were stage diving it was like the first time i ever felt like holy cow this is this feels like I'm in a hardcore band and and people are going nuts. So that, that one stands out, but a lot of, a lot of the rest of it honestly blurs together.
0: That that's one of my favorite Syracuse shows too. I think Rory and I actually went to that one together and that was like, you guys buried alive, uh, good, clean, fun, snap case. Like it was like a perfect like capsule for that era, you know? Yeah. Um, so I guess, I don't know if these bands all kind of like, if you work, like, were you in bands consistently the whole time in Syracuse? Like, was there like any downtime or anything? Or were you always kind of like jumping from one band to the other type thing? Uh yeah, pretty much, pretty much always. So uh Eternal Youth
2: uh was was winding down at the very end of Eternal Youth, Tony was playing drums for us. And that I was I was like surprised because Tony like played in another victim. I felt like he was like on the varsity team and he was coming to play with the JV guys or like the front, but like, I didn't really understand why. And then later on I learned that Tony just has an addiction to playing drums and he'll literally like, he's like a junkie. So like, if he's not like, I think he knew he was kind of had to get another band set up. So he was like, yeah, sure. I'll play with these guys. And so because of that, I I played with him a little bit and then um, they were doing Darker Day Tomorrow. And uh, at some point, they asked me to be in the band. And that, like, again, like, wasn't my, like, like, it wasn't my number one favorite type of music at that time. Later on, actually, being in that band, I got a really awesome appreciation for heavier stuff. Um, But I just wanted to play. and, And I remember, like, just the opportunity to play with Travis. I was super into playing with Travis because... Herman, I loved Herman DeKalb. Actually, I, at that point in time, I was getting into like some like weirder stuff. Like I loved, uh, you know, uh, Converge and Cave-In and just like weirder metal stuff. And, you know, so Travis, I just thought was this amazing. I mean, he is this amazing guitar player and he was so good. So the opportunity to play with Travis, I was like, sure, I'll play whatever, you know, like whatever you need. And I, I was just like, I think I was just like a utility bass player. Like they just needed a guy that could play bass or whatever. So I was happy to jump in. Um, so, yeah. So then I, I went to that band and, you know, I think I played in bands, you know, from that point on uh, while I lived there.
0: Um, Yeah, it's weird. I when, when I talked to Tony, I don't even know if I asked him about Eternal Youth, but I mean, like you said, and, and I didn't realize until I was getting ready to interview him, but he's been in literally like 40 bands. It's so crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. it seems like, if you're a good consistent drummer like that because like mike jeffers in buffalo i don't know if you ever met him or not but he's been in like a million bands too and i feel like if you're just like because like drummers are hard to come by especially good like consistent ones like that you know what i mean so yeah. Yeah. um yeah. but i, with- I
2: worry i i worry about tony the day he's not in a band like i think his head's gonna explode so uh, hopefully it just it keeps going forever
0: Well, he's playing in the flashing astonishers now and they've been around for like 30 years. So I feel like that's gonna last for quite a while, you know, so,
1: um,
0: but did you do, like, I, I I imagine you at least did a, like a little bit of weekends and possibly some touring with EY, but did you, did you do more of that with darker day tomorrow? About the same.
2: A little bit more. I think we did one weekend out to Chicago with eternal youth and we, we did it with, I think that was with head on. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, and with Darker Day Tomorrow, we did a really uh, ill-fated tour with Sparklights of Friction, but Spark Lights of, Spark Lights of Friction's van broke down right at the beginning. So it was just kind of us, and we were like out in North Dakota and Iowa, and it was like, it, it wasn't really a great scene. Uh, there were many days in between stuff. I remember we were playing shows with this band called Billy, and we were just like, we were living in their basement for like four days in Sioux Falls, uh, or no, it was in somewhere, Sioux City, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, something like that. So that was kind of a bummer, but I mean, it was an experience for sure. It was good to get out and play shows, um, uh, you know, but it, that, I think that was the extent of it. We went up to Canada a lot um, because. The label we were on, Red Star Records, was out of Canada, so we went to Canada all the time, um, and going to Buffalo and you know Erie and those types of places. That that was about the extent of it.
0: You know, it's crazy when I when I first started doing this podcast uh, like three years ago, I wouldn't have expected to interview like pretty much the entire uh, band of Darker Day Tomorrow. But I think aside from my, I forget what the singer's name was. Craig, I think he's Craig. That's right. I think he's the only one that I haven't interviewed now because I like, I started talking to Tom Cavanaugh about this and that like a yeah, year or so yeah. ago and then ended up doing that. And now we've done, I mean, we've done a shitload of Syracuse interviews too. I mean, obviously you're kind of more like a mixture of both, you know, but um, you know, that, that, that's, yeah. that's crazy. Um, so collect did them, you
2: collect all the box tops? Get them all. <laughs> if you get, if you get a chance talk to Craig cause he is one of the most hilarious people uh, you'll ever talk to. I haven't talked with him in probably 20 years, but I'm sure he's still just as hilarious.
0: Yeah, I would love to interview him. And it's crazy because he's like, the like, I never really knew him all that well. Like, I, I didn't really know Tom all that well either before, like, doing the podcast and stuff. So that's what's been fun about doing this. Like, it's people, like, I either haven't talked to in a long time It's cool to catch up with or, like, sometimes, like, just getting to know people better is fun, too, you know, or both. Yeah. Um, so um, did, uh, I guess, I, I mean, I, I think I know personally the story but like did did the funeral kind of come along from like people being in darker day tomorrow type thing or
2: yeah so I think like darker day tomorrow it was I don't know I think it was kind of winding down or we kind of knew like hey like eh, where things are going in different directions or whatever Um, and like we wanted to do like a side project with Grant and um, Peters was actually in the in the funeral at the very beginning. And so it was kind of this darker day tomorrow, Sparklights the Friction side project. Um, and I mean I view it as Tony like has this sixth sense. He you you know, if a band's gonna break up, he has to have another band ready to go. Uh, And so I think he kind of maybe was reading the tea leaves a little bit and was like, okay, I need a safety band in case uh, darker day tomorrow goes so I think that's kind of like was was the beginning of it, but there was some parallel. uh, Some parallel period, but I like the funeral was right up my alley so that was like I I joined darker day tomorrow just basically to be in a band and an opportunity to play with Travis and and these dudes, Um, but it wasn't like. You know that it's funny now i love crowbar and i love like all the stuff that that we were trying to do uh, but at the time i had no idea um, but the funeral was like right up it was like fast and aggressive and noisy and you know heavy um so so i was super stoked uh to, to start that up
0: yeah and i feel like i've said it and again having interviewed most of the people from that band too i feel like i don't think it was during hex's interview but i feel like one of the other people like, I know you guys, you said you had a different singer, short, short period of time for that band, but like, I feel like that's like the perfect band that I picture Hex singing in, you know, a band yeah, like The Funeral, yeah, you know? Yeah. And Yeah, no, uh, I mean,
2: it, it was, we, we. so he like tried out and I, had, I don't, I might be making this up, I hope not. But like, I had heard that like, oh, before he had tried out for Darker Day Tomorrow or, or some other band that people were in and they were like, yeah, I'm just, yeah, Hex, awesome dude, but like not cut out for this and he tried out for the funeral and then like completely blew us away like it was so awesome we're like like this is this is so great because hex was a fixture in the scene and you know he was booking all the shows at the westcott at the time and you know had obviously had a lot of awesome things to say like because he was just writing all the time and we knew so it, it was it was it felt really meant to be
0: yeah and what's weird is i feel like I'm not gonna make this mistake this time because i've interviewed most of the other guys in the band but i feel like every time i asked them i was always like oh yeah you guys did a lot of touring right and they would always be like no we did a couple weekends here and there but for some reason to me it seemed like you guys were always playing shows though you know what i mean like
2: we're always playing local shows but yeah i mean we we knew going into the band that um we didn't have huge ambitions for it because we just knew like you know tony you know was was working jobs and you know get, you know, people are getting more serious. And so it was more of just a passion thing, like we didn't have any delusions that we were gonna get signed and go on big tours. And um, so we just really kept our ambitions in check and just, you know, lived within the constraints of, of what we knew we could do, which was a lot of local shows, but we still practiced all the time. So I feel like we really made the most of, of the shows that we did play. Um, and I don't know maybe when you're not trying as hard to do something bigger it's just more natural and and i felt like that was the most um uh i, I don't want to say professional but it was the most like solid out of all the bands i've been in in terms of us just like having clear vision and executing on it
0: and one thing you're saying about like not having any like not 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 thinking you guys are going to be like this big band or anything it makes me think kind of back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the interview about like you kind of trying to seek out like the bands that weren't as popular and stuff like that like so this is the kind of period of time in hardcore where like things were kind of getting more like mainstream for lack of a better word you know with like myspace and like bigger tours and stuff like with working like i think you were still doing the zine around this time right like 2003 era Were you still working with those guys on that or or not so much, son?
2: Yeah, maybe, I I think Mm -hmm. so. Um, But, you know, honestly, I I wasn't, yeah, I think I was graduating college and then had graduated college. I can't remember the exact time period. But, like, while I was in school, I knew, like, I was just focused on school. I'm I'm here to get get an education. And, you know, I wasn't going to drop out of school to go on tour or, or anything like that. Um, so I, I didn't, my, my goal, my ambition wasn't to be in like a huge touring band, not that. And I also knew I'm not like this amazingly talented person that was just going to be able to pull that off. And so it was just never, uh, it was just never a goal for me. Um, and actually like one of the things that when I, when I think about hardcore and what draws me to hardcore is in, in like, I, I think about this when I go to shows still, is it seems so irrational? Like you have all these kids that drive to wherever to see a bunch of bands play and no one's really making money off of it in in the you know, I'm sure like in some parts, you know, bands got big, but for the most part, people aren't making a lot of money off of this thing. And so like it's the it, it like to an out from an outsider, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like you've got a bunch of kids and they're all screaming to this like terrible music. That i don't understand and no one's like who's making money off of this no one is so it like almost seems crazy um it's like a very irrational thing but that's what really appealed to me because it was it's so the opposite of everything else in society like we live in this hyper capitalist society where like every interaction is monetized and is a financial exchange And that's like what seems normal is if you have an exchange with someone, there's like some sort of financial thing and like hardcore is just a way to just like wipe that out and. uh, People are doing it because they love to do it and like that's how I always felt like it just wouldn't even make sense like if this turned into for me anyway, if this turned into a job or or whatever This just wasn't like in my realm of what I wanted to do with it like. I knew I was, you know, I was going to go to college and probably get some other job or something. And then this was going to be just a thing I, I did on the side. So,
1: anyway.
0: I was going to ask you also like about how you felt about like the bands and like stuff like that with hardcore getting more popular at the time. But I think, I think your answer to the, to the previous question kind of answered that at the same time. But if you have any other thoughts on that too.
2: Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I think if people can figure out how to make a living off of stuff that they like doing, like that is the, like the ultimate hack in, in society is be, is to figure that out. Um, and I think it's amazing when people can do that. And I'm all for supporting artists and people paying for art and because it provides a valuable service to our society and people need money to eat uh, and live. Um, but I think there, there's something clearly obvious when, if it, if, if it switches from, what you're doing goes from because this is uh honest and it's what you're passionate about and it and you just happen it happens to catch on versus we're going to try to like adapt and figure out like the trend and get on like it's just very obvious when with you know which is the motivation uh that that someone's doing and i'm just i'm just not super interested in uh you know doing it for for uh you know the reasons only to make Get a job like that that's great i wish people all the best but that that's just let, not that interesting for me to to hear
0: yeah i was talking a few episodes back with uh when i interviewed the dude from uh band rejection Pact about stuff like that because i'm curious to see like now with like some bands kind of getting bigger from hardcore like what's going to happen if if bands will come along just to kind of try to use hardcore as like a uh launching pad or whatever basically to like bigger and better things so to speak you know and just to be
2: clear i fucking love the turnstile record like like that that is a great example where i feel like that is an undeniably great record it's freaking awesome i know there's probably some people that are like oh it's like whatever like they're, they're you know it's not hardcore or whatever but like that that record is amazing and in my mind it's 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 um fortunate that the most of the world thinks so too um, like same thing with refuse shape a punk to come like that was a huge huge record especially in Europe and it was it's undeniably amazing so when that stuff just catches on that that's great but um, you know that that that's rare that I think something can come from hardcore or punk and and have that type of impact just because uh, by nature uh, hardcore is a pretty um i don't want to say constrained but there there is a there's a, there are very clear elements to what it is uh and it often does not line to what most people want to listen to
0: yeah and i think i think that like just having the hardcore mentality now is kind of how you can get more like all these different genres of it you know what i mean like as long as they have that like that same mentality that we have it might not sound like what you and I would have defined as hardcore like 25 years ago but like the the idea is there you know what I mean so to speak so yeah, yeah. um so your next few bands I'm not as familiar with I know I was traveling a little bit then um, I can't remember if Grant told any uh, stories about pregnant rat on uh, <laughs> the interview that I did with him I feel like I'd remember but I feel like he did bring it up Yeah, uh, no.
2: pregnant rat was like this fun thing like so a bunch so me, Grant, Jim, John, bunch of kids that we went to SU with. Um, it was like this performance art uh improv metal band that we just started doing. We played shows at the in the basement of our dorm. We actually played with Human Shield, which was Hex and Keith's uh weird uh crazy band and we played the Westcott a couple times. Um and so it, it, was, it was more of us doing like performance art and trying to like freak people out. Like we, we would do a thing where um, we had our, our friend, Mike, uh, we, we, had, we played a show and Mike was in a plastic bag filled with a mix, like a garbage bag filled with a mixture of water and Vaseline and food coloring and stuff. And we, it was supposed to be like a placenta. And he, we covered it with our banner for like half the show, and then he was just laying under there. And then, so two or three songs in, we rip off the banner, and he like claws out of this like this garbage bag, and like this stuff is just like leaking on the ground and like staining the floor of the Westcott. Um, And so we just we like doing stuff like that and just you know doing weird stuff and you know so that 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 was a good time. There was this. noise scene like noise core scene um so we played with these other noise bands uh from these kids that that went to su as well um and so there's like this little scene built around that but it was this weird thing where we we essentially just jammed we would like chug on d and just jam and like everyone went crazy it was like the the most nuts thing for whatever reason it just kind of like worked out even though we didn't practice really or prepare
0: now you know how like I feel like around that same time, Rhode Island had kind of like a scene for that kind of stuff, too, like like Black Dice, maybe like was it any of that kind of stuff or not, not that, uh, not that, uh, I, I
2: don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think no. it was just our own like, hey, there was like this practice space in the dorm. So we're like, let's fucking use it like <laughs> we can, we have this facility we can use. And so none of us were, were really going to write any songs. So we just like jammed and it just was just this weird self-perpetuating thing that just like people kept like being like what the fuck is going on and then we eventually just
0: played shows so yeah shows plural so you played a bunch of shows like that or with that yeah we
2: we played a few there there was a couple shows uh there was like one at spark art gallery and the westcott we might have played one or two times and yeah so it was a fun thing we also we had um this band called skin graft that was me grant jim and a couple of other our other friends and all we did was youth of today and left for dead covers and so we were we were probably the world's only left for dead slash youth of today cover band um and we would play those shows we were just like you know fucking around doing you know whatever we wanted to do
0: i never saw left for Dead. it'd be cool to see somebody do some covers you know um and then you you did a couple more bands in syracuse uh I feel like, I, I don't know, I might have seen We The People. I don't know, because I feel like that was that was like 2006, around then, right?
2: Yeah, so that was, like, the funeral was breaking up, and um, Chuck wanted to do a band. And I, I think We The People might have been Chuck Hickey's first band. I can't, I think it might have been. I don't know, but it was, it was like, I think before AWOL and Black SS and stuff. And for whatever reason, we all just wanted to start an Oi band. So... It was me and Jim and again, Peters played guitar at the very beginning and our friend Swisher uh, that, that we were friends with. And we, we started playing OI songs. And then like, I, and I, I really love We The People. I really love that stuff. What, what happened was we, we like came up with this concept of post-OI, so we were like gonna be a post-OI band. And I like to think of it as um, like the second Blitz record is a synth record um and it's amazing we all loved it and it seemed like there's there's like this period in between the oi stuff and then like the post-punk synth stuff going on in the uk that like what would be in between and i i'm always really i love like these transition periods like i love when there's like these weird transitions like i love uh youth of today disengage seven inch because you can hear they're like evolving From youth of today into shelter, but like I love that like kind of unformedness of it, Um, and I love when there's like the you know kind of this this weird transition. Fast Break, that the band from Connecticut, um, they have an album called Fast Cars, Fast Women that I freaking love. It's like today one of my favorite hardcore bands because it was them transitioning from a pretty typical old school hardcore band into more of a poppy band that was like on the revel they were on revelation to put out their last record and this was like this this in between period i always think is really interesting because you never like know where it's going and so we want i anyway thought of it like that of like what if an oi band is transitioning into a synth or poppier band and like what's that middle period so that that's what we we're trying to do um and John played one show for us and then was moving, I think, to Boston. And so he couldn't do it. So our friend, John Davies came and played guitar and, um, yeah, that band was really awesome. It was, it was like the best time, uh, really good friends and, and playing with Chuck, like we didn't know Chuck could sing or do anything. And so that was just like, so great. Um, and then, uh, everyone in the band, except for Chuck moved down to New York city. So for a while we did it. Um, well, we didn't play for a while and then we, we, we reformed it and Chuck was coming down to practice every once in a while and record, um, and so we did that for a little while. And then eventually uh, Chuck was uh, going out, uh, leaving and going to Chicago and, and California and stuff. And um, so we, we kept doing another version of that band called Urchins of the Night, which was like the same band, but just with all of us sharing vocals, so that was so that continued actually from Syracuse into when we moved to New York. Are
0: you, are you keeping up with any of these like modern, I guess you'd call them oi bands like Violent Wade, uh, even like the Chisel or a conservative military image at all? Or uh,
2: I, I am not, none of those bands uh, <laughs> I'm super familiar with. Um, but not, you know, maybe I'll check them out. I like to, I, I'm always yeah. checking out new stuff, but I, um, I find you know i just i don't know if it's growing up or whatever but i find myself listening as a percentage less to hardcore and punk music and more to just other things um so probably not totally on the up and up with with everything going on
0: yeah i mostly listen to podcasts and then if i'm getting ready to interview somebody i listen to like a lot of the stuff that they did but of those bands that i mentioned conservative military image is like the to me the best because they're like i mean the chisel does it too they blend like hardcore and punk and oi, but like I don't know, that, that conservative military image band. It's like something about them. It's just like they're, I want to see them live. So I feel like it'd be a really crazy like like live show or whatever. So cool. um, have you played in any bands, any other bands, like since you've been in New York City or anything? Or,
2: uh, No, that that Artsons of the Night uh, project we did was like the last thing I, I played with. Jim, Jim always is doing solo stuff. And so I think I played one or two shows, just kind of backing him up. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's harder as you get older and you're working 40 hours a week and you know, there's a million other things you're responsible for. It's just, it's just really tough, uh, to kind of devote the time that I think it really takes to, to do a good job and, and do something you're proud of. So, uh, just haven't done it in a while.
0: And whether it's hardcore or not, I'm sure you've probably seen at least a few uh, noteworthy shows or concerts or gigs or whatever you want to call them uh, in New York city.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, when I moved down, um, so it was interesting. Like, um, I, I always wanted to live in New York, so I knew I was going to end up in New York, but I was, it was very different than Syracuse. So like Syracuse being the size city it is, it it very much felt like a family like everyone knew each other not everyone got along but it's like you don't get along with your whole family and you know whatever but like there was this kind of like regardless of what people think of each other like we are a scene and everyone knows each other and, and um it's 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 really nice and you move to new york and it's so big and there's so many different scenes and so many different things going on and people are coming and going and there's just no, like that community feeling just, I, I just didn't really see it. Like I didn't really meet people. It wasn't, it wasn't the same type of thing. Um, so there were a ton of awesome shows. Um, we go to ABC No Rio all the time. They were doing a ton of shows when, when I started going and then that was the end of CBS. So there were all these amazing Legendary shows happening at CB's, and I've seen so many, so much good stuff uh, at CBGB's towards the end, which was which was really awesome. Um, so the music I saw was was really great, but I feel like the the feeling of Syracuse and and Rochester and you know these these scenes in these communities, I just I just never got again after after I left.
0: Yeah, it's got to be tough in a big city like that with there being so many people. Even like in the scene, there is probably like you know. I mean I've been to two shows there and they're like I mean they're one of them is a black and blue blow show so obviously there's gonna be you know a shitload of people there but it just it's like a bigger thing there you know what I mean it's not like yeah, I don't know if they have any like community center like I know I know like you said ABC in you know, Rio is kind of like a DIY type thing I, I, yeah. I, that closed a few years ago though right
2: yeah they had to they had to move I think they're they're opening up uh, or they've been trying to open up a new space um, but re- getting real estate in Manhattan is not the easiest thing um but yeah ABC no Rio for sure is like the closest thing to Westcott um and they're they're like we the people played there I was super happy to play shows there that was kind of a dream um so yeah but um it's just there's so many people it's just hard like it just doesn't feel like that that local feeling uh where you you kind of know most people um it's just and it's it's like disorienting almost where you can go to a show and you are looking at a bunch bunch of punk hardcore people and you literally don't know any of them and it's this weird feeling it's like how can i see this many punks and not know any of them it's just it's you know but that's that's how big it
0: is i remember in 2006 i traveled across country to probably like seven or eight cities from like northeast and i ended up in denver for a few months and then in, you know out to california and back but like the second or third city was new york city and I didn't travel that, that wisely. Like I had all my shit on me pretty much. Cause I didn't know if I was coming back to Rochester. So I just had like a few boxes in my hands, and like a big, like back, like camping backpack on my back and maybe like one of those rolling suitcases. And I'm trying to walk through like, uh, one of the main like subway stations in New York city to get to Brooklyn with all that shit, like during like a peak hour and like, no one's being friendly. They're all just like literally like pushing right through me. And it's like, you're used to being in Rochester where it's like people will give you a dirty look if you have that much shit, but they're not going to like, literally push you out of the way. I was like, "Holy shit, this is a totally different like universe pretty much, you know." So.
2: Yeah. Well, what what I what I like to say cuz people talk about, you know, how pushy New Yorkers are or whatever is like this is people's commute, you know, like if you go out to LA and you're on the four hundred five or whatever—I don't know what the name of that highway is. I think that's it. And you're like going twenty miles an hour, looking around. It's, it's like people are gonna be like, "What the fuck, man? I'm trying to get to my job." So I like to think it's it's the same thing in New York. But um, but yeah, the overwhelming amount of people is in just like every no matter what you're into, there's just like always gonna be a ton of people. Um, so it you know it's tough to to like find people like I actually did my my wife uh, was you know I met um, through punk and hardcore in New York and so like that is obviously I'm very thankful and um, she keeps me honest and keeps me going to shows and stuff like that um, but you know other other than than her and a couple of other people it was just it was just really tough to feel like uh, you know it, it was a scene like I was used to
0: yeah um, I think that, that's most of the topics that I had. I don't know if there's anything that, that, that we missed on or anything. I do want to say, I don't know how much of the story you want to tell. If you don't want to tell any, that's fine. But I do want to at least put in the episode that one of them, like, I think you're somebody we would have interviewed eventually. But like the, the, the way this whole thing came about is Hex had posted something about, I don't know how the Woodstock came up in conversation, or maybe I just brought it up. But I was like, yeah, somebody should have Andy Williams tell that story of how he snuck into Woodstock 1999 because it's the coolest story. And then Grant was like, oh, you should have him on your podcast. So then I told you about all this. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, and by the way, we would love to have you on the podcast. And you were like, yeah, but actually, it's not really a cool story at all. And <laughs> all these years, like 20 plus years, I had seen you like post this long thing on the Trusco board and you like wrote a thing in, oh. in Hexazine, which I think was the same story. And it was like you guys all like like went to where the, 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 the thing was and like snuck in and everything. And I'm like, yeah. I, I always I, thought I it was this cool thing.
2: I don't remember what I wrote, but I mean, it was one of the worst nights of my life. Um, and so, so like Woodstock 99 was happening. And obviously like now I think there's been one or two Woodstocks since. So it's like, and that, and that Woodstock was really notorious for like awful shit that went down there. That was really terrible. Um, but it was like at the time, you know, at the time this thing was about to happen, it was like, oh man, it's 30 years or whatever from the last Woodstock and it's down the road, uh, in it was like near Rome or whatever. And so we were going to just be like, let's just go and try to sneak in because everyone like crashed the gates of the original Woodstock. And we had no plan at all. We were like purposely, we we're like, we're going to have no plan. And we're just going to like show up and try to get in somehow. And so Jim drove, it was me and Jim from Sparklights of Friction and uh, two of his friends that I knew kind of well, but not really. Um, and so we just, we just rolled in and like, through like a series of uh, just figuring things out. Like we walked through the woods and then there was like this, you know, like we could hear, we're just like walking to where the music was. And this kid at one point was like, Hey, I can show you the hole in the fence. That's where you can get in. And then like we went in and then like had to sneak through and someone bribed a security guard or something. Um, And I remember actually going through that fence, Bush was playing, because I remember like Glycerine was playing. I'm like, (laughs) all right, okay, I guess we're in it. This is the thing. And then when we finally got in, Moby was spinning. So I was like, all right. And then it was kind of like, well, what do we do? Now we're in. And it was just like, I don't know. And then somehow we got split up and, and me and this dude and Jim, and this other guy, like we, we went different ways or we got split up somehow. And Jim was my ride, he was like all of our ride. And so we didn't have cell phones, this is, there's no cell phones. So we are just like trying to find our ride in this fucking hellscape of you know tens of thousands of douchebags. And uh, it, I remember just being like, this sucks. We're like a 45 minute drive and I don't know uh, how we're gonna get home eventually we left like that morning. I was so tired. Like we were up all night. I fell asleep on the cement of like a strip mall, like sidewalk. And it was just like terrible. And then by some act of the gods, I saw Jim walking through this parking lot and was like, oh my God. And then we like met up and were able to drive home. But it was a really fucking stupid thing to do, especially without cell phones and then just getting split up. Um, but I, it, it just, the whole thing felt terrible. And then like like shortly after the news came out about like all the terrible shit and like you know people were getting assaulted and all this awful stuff that went down so i kind of like was like yeah that was pretty stupid but anyway yeah that that's what happened
0: you guys weren't there like when the shit really hit the fan though right you guys were there the night before or whatever
2: yeah i don't i don't even know i remember moby was spinning so whatever that
0: that was i feel like uh, you would know because there was like i've not i haven't haven't watched any documentaries because like i didn't Sometimes I'll watch like the, you know, whatever people are talking about or the, you know, type thing, because people were like hyped up on that last summer when all those documentaries came out on like Netflix or wherever else they put them out. And I was just like, 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 I didn't go to it. I saw your story before. So I always thought that was kind of cool. But like, I don't really care about too many of bands that played. So I haven't really seen a documentary, but I feel like you would know if because I think they were like, it was either Metallica or Olympus, again, and they started like lighting fires and shit or whatever. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah,
2: I have no idea. I mean, really, like, what we were about <laughs> was just trying to like get into adventures and just like find stuff to do and, you know, go outside the lines of what, uh, you know, typically our, our college peers were doing. And so that was just one, uh, one, one opportunity for us that we thought would be an interesting thing. But, yeah, it, it uh, ended up being uh, a, a not great uh, night slash day for me, but it's, it's fine now to tell the story now.
0: Yeah, the things the things we had to do to entertain ourselves before TikTok yeah. and everything else that people have to keep themselves occupied with now and whatever they're going to have in 20 years, you know, it's yeah. it's a lot, a lot different. Um But I guess kind of starting to wrap up, is there anything we missed or anything? Or I know like a constant theme we've talked about is like community and stuff like that within Hardcore. Like, is there anything else that you'd want to have like in an interview about like Hardcore and stuff like that, or?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, this is this is fun. I just, you know, thanks, Josh. This is like, um, it's fun to talk about this stuff. And I'll just say Syracuse is really special to me, even though I haven't lived there for uh, 20 years or 19 years or whatever. Um, And, So, so in Connecticut, like my parents don't live in the town that I grew up in. I, you know, the house I grew up in, isn't there. Like I have to go to a different place. So I really like the closest thing I have to feeling like I have a home is Syracuse because a lot of those places are there. I can go to Alto Cinco where I worked for years and you know, these things still exist. Um, and so Syracuse is really special to me because it it feels more like a home than probably anything I have. Um, so I, I need to get back up there. It's been way too long since I've been there. Um, but it's just, it's just a really special time. And, you know, I know I'll be friends for my entire life with, uh, people I met. Um, fortunately when I lived there and it was a a really special thing, um, during those years, I'm sure there's awesome stuff happening now as well. And things always go in waves, but, um, I'm just, I feel really fortunate. Uh, to have been there at that time and play in the bands and people that I got to play with and see. And,
1: you know, it was, it was great.
0: The Hardcore Archive podcast is Josh Lyons and Greg Benoit with creative support from Rob Antonucci.
1: This podcast is a product of the Rochester Hardcore community. Theme song provided by Standfast. Visit Hardcore Archive
0: podcast on Linktree to listen to past episodes.
1: Follow Hardcore Archive podcast and Enterprise Hardcore podcast on Instagram for updates. If you have
0: an idea for an episode or would like to have your band's music featured during the closing credits, please contact us at HardcoreArchivePodcast at gmail.com.